The preaching of God's Word then is in James 3, in the final verse, verse 18, wherein we read, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. It's a worthwhile question to consider. What does a wise person seek? What does righteousness pursue? You have the answer, of course, in the passage before us. Now, some may want to judge of wisdom and righteousness by how many debates they have or how many victories they have procured or how highly others think of them. And there are countless other ways that the world would judge. And unfortunately, we ourselves, having been guilty of the same, have judged falsely as well. But the scriptures here give us guidance. So you'll notice the context of our passage is first by condemning that sin of speech and that uh, difficult abrasion that follows worldly wisdom, the bitter envying and strife in your hearts and all of that that takes place, even as James says in verse 15, that this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish, And notice the fruit of that type of wisdom is stated in verse 16, where envying and strife is, there is confusion, that is, unquietness, there's tumult, there's turning over, it's the opposite of peace, and every evil work. But then he moves on to consider true wisdom. And this true wisdom, which we've been considering, brings forth the fruit of righteousness, And yet, this fruit of righteousness is produced by and cultivates peace. Notice the text. The fruit of righteousness, this display of true righteousness, this full and living and gracious reality, is then sown in peace. It invests in a peaceful way by those who make peace. And of course, it then produces the same thing. You can think of it this, children. If you have an apple and you take the apple seed and plant it, you sow it, you plant it, you care for it, you know what it's going to produce. Not looking for what's it going to bring to pass. Is it going to be a peach? Or is it going to be a grapevine? Or is it going to be a fir tree or something else? You know that this seed that is sown is going to then, if it is is bringing forth life, is going to produce an apple tree and apple uh, fruit and apple seeds to follow. And so all of this is tending toward the same thing. This true and God-sent wisdom, the wisdom that is from above, which is characterized in all these ways we've considered, which is summarily here spoken of as the fruit of righteousness, is that which is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's sown, so that means it's scattered and it's planted And it's not just sown toward the end of peace, but it's sown in a peaceful way. That's why James says it's sown in peace. And by whom is it sown? By them that make peace. You see a contrast in the chapter, can't you? So the tongue is mentioned earlier as we read, and the tongue is a chief way that displays our own remaining sin. Every Christian knows the strike of conscience when we let our tongue fly. And this is one reason 
that James says there shouldn't be many who are pursuing office in the church because officers will receive a stricter, a, a comprehensive and full judgment. But notice what the effect of such an unruly tongue, a contentious tongue is. As it says in verse 5, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, and so on. But this is opposite of wisdom and the tongue of wisdom. If we can think of the tongue of the fool, the tongue of one who is wise in an earthly and sensual and devilish way, what are they sowing? They're not sowing seeds that are peacefully sown. They're not seeking the establishment of peace. They may be seeking many other things, but that's not what they're seeking. However, this full spectrum of wisdom that's been displayed has, as it were, focused in on this as its goal. Chiefly, of course, the glory of God. But here James is dealing in a context of our relationships with others. And so James is presenting to us the beauty of true biblical wisdom. He's considered, and we've considered, verse 17, various properties and characteristics and uh, uh, sort of attributes, if you will, of wisdom. But it's here where he turns our attention to say when there is this wisdom, this is what its display is like. This is what it produces. This is what it tends toward. So biblical wisdom which brings forth righteousness, pursues peace with others. Now, this, of course, as we've already indicated in previous times together, does not mean it's peace at any cost. It doesn't mean it's a compromised peace whereby we say, well, God's truth doesn't matter. God's standard is uh, not really going to be upheld. And you can see that in the text itself when it speaks of the fruit of righteousness. So this is not a world's understanding of peace where there's, you know, in the 60s, give peace a try and all of this stuff in all of the midst of war. This is not some current contemporary plea whereby we say, you know, don't condemn others for their choices, just accept others and carry on. Because the peace that James is speaking of is a peace that is connected with and produces the fruit of righteousness. So it can't be that sinful and sensual and worldly way. However, it's important to see that it is characterized and pursues a peaceful course. And so this, in other words, doesn't permit us to say, well, that nonsense is rejected, therefore, we don't need to carry or care about the manner in which we go about speaking the truth. We don't need to care about the manner in which we carry ourselves. We don't need to care about the way in which we entertain doctrinal debates and disagreements and other such things. Instead, there is a both and. The both and is there is both righteousness and peace brought together in the exercise of biblical wisdom. We see this most perfectly, of course, in our beloved Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of righteousness and yet the King of peace. You remember in the book of Hebrews, there's much made of Melchizedek, and his name literally translates as King of righteousness. 
And this is, of course, applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Melchizedek was king of Salem, the word Salem meaning peace. Christ Jesus is in one and the same person at one and the same time, the king of righteousness and the king of peace, all in one person. They're not contrary to one another. They are united to one another. You can think of this from the outset as we, before we dive in more fully. If, for instance, the righteous standards of God's law were perfectly observed, think of what there wouldn't be. Robbery, there'd be no blasphemy, there'd be no murder, there'd be nothing that tends toward the unlawful taking of life or the unlawful taking of property. There'd be uh, no immoral uh, relationships which often then lead to broken homes and uh, even to murder and other such things. There'd be no idolatry, which is a, a great display of the uh, uh, lack of peace with God, which then, of course, when there is uh, a rift in that relationship, there will be uh, a massive uh, breakdown in other relationships. If God's law were perfectly established, there would be nothing but the flourishing of absolute Full peace. By the way, this is one way by which we understand heaven. Heaven is the perfection of righteousness. And what else is it the perfection of? The perfection of love and joy and peace. Well, much more could be said, but consider two things as we conclude our series on biblical wisdom, certainly not intending to say that all has been said about biblical wisdom, but we end here with the fruit of wisdom focused on peace. Firstly, consider the employment of wisdom. And secondly, consider the goal of wisdom. The employment and the goal. It's important as we begin with the first, the employment of wisdom, that we are clear and perhaps quick because... We're summarizing what we've already covered, that the wisdom that is employed is biblical wisdom. And so we've talked about this in many different ways. You know that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So if it's going to be wisdom employed, as James is speaking of, it's going to be that which comes by one who is humbled before God, one who fears and reverences and honors God above all else. Whatever, whatever others are doing, I have my fixation upon God. This, of course, directs us then to His Word. So, biblical wisdom is engrossed in, it is written in, it is found in God's Word. It's there. So, in other words, we can't say, well, that's why if it's contrary to God's Word, however many people think it's good, it's foolish. Just this past week, there was some effort, I don't know the details, perhaps others will know more, where homosexual marriage was uh, uh, protected by our federal government. And our president spoke of, justice is justice, love is love. Brethren, that is a very clear picture of how far afield our world's understanding of justice and love is. And brethren, here's why we're concerned about things like that. It's not just because of the gross and abominable wickedness that is there. 
It's because it is the guarantee that there will not be peace in our land. Because there's no biblical wisdom in those things. There cannot be harmony within society. There cannot be righteousness flourishing. Unbiblical practices. It's not because we want to isolate one sin against others. It's because the world has so escalated the focus upon this abominable action and considering it to be good when it's evil. Here's the issue. That's not biblical wisdom. And it has no chance, no possibility of bringing forth what it claims to establish and pursue. It will not pursue, it will not procure, it will not protect peace. That its exact opposite will prevail for the season. Now that's one contemporary example among many others. The point here biblically is when we hear the world saying those things, whether it's from a president or pastor, whether it's from a friend or co-worker, whether it's from the radio or something else, we have to realize that that is error. It's sinful wickedness. It uses the words that are nice and helpful and kind, justice, love, peace, but it is bereft of any substance of those true words. And so, think of this. The world looks at biblical wisdom as evil. It's precisely what the Scriptures say. They call evil good, and they call good evil. Well, when we speak of the employment of wisdom, we're emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes. If we're going to be pursuing, as James says, peace, we have to be employing what the Bible calls wisdom. And remember, it starts with the fear of God. It's governed by God's Word because it reverences God. It doesn't raise questions like, well, you know, hath God said? Or, well, I know God said then, but isn't He still speaking today? Haven't we sort of learned by cultural understanding that there's a, some, you know, some things are just antiquated? You know, that sounds so archaic that men should be and this should, and you know families should be governed in this way and only men should be officers in the church. That all seems antiquated and archaic and out of touch with society. Well, brethren, it may be out of touch with society, but that's not our standard. The standard is, what does the God whom we profess to fear say in His Word? And it's not because we're biblicists or something of that sort, though we do acknowledge the Scriptures are the sole authority, the ultimate authority of all matters of faith, worship, and practice, it is because we are also committed to seeking peace. And we acknowledge that there's no other avenue of seeking peace but by the employment of the wisdom which God has given and instructed in His Word. Remember the characteristics just are summarily stated in verse 17. Wisdom that is from above, divine wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is first pure. It has and admits no error, no sin, no disloyalty to God. 
Whatever others may say, so soon as they are admitting of something that is unholy into their counsel, into their thoughts, into their actions and approaches, whether they bear the name Christian, whether they bear the name pastor, whether a church member, an elder, whether they're whoever they are, so soon as they're admitting of that which defiles, it is departing at least by degree from that which is worthy of the description of heavenly wisdom. But you'll notice, this doesn't allow us to become fiery and ungoverned. It is peaceable. The purity is, you can think of it this way, there's fire which purifies. When you think of fire purifying, it's taking away what is unhelpful or unhealthy. And so the purpose of the pure uh, approach of wisdom is to remove that which actually hinders true society, true peace, true fellowship. And yet it's also going about it in a peaceable way. And all these other characteristics of without partiality, it's full of mercy and good fruit and so on. It's important to emphasize that the wisdom that is being employed is the wisdom which is truly wisdom. The wisdom which God Gives. We ought to remember that this employment of biblical wisdom is rarely employed in easy circumstances. Biblical wisdom, when it's seen, when it's evident, is often found in the most difficult of scenarios and at times it seems competing uh, allegiances. So you think of how Christ says it this way in one sense, he says, you know, he that does not hate his mother or father or sister or brother or child is not worthy of me. That's a difficult statement. It's meant to be provocative, not in a sinful way, not in a poking way, but in a way to challenge us to say, where is my ultimate allegiance? Because what we can find is we start to get clever and cunning in our way of trying to find how can I try to hold fast in some sense to Christ while allowing for this thing that would lead me astray because of my spouse or child or parent or whoever else. Christ says, let's be simple and plain. You must love me above all else, which will come out in some sense at times as if you would even hate your mother or father, sister, brother, spouse, etc. The point is, to exercise biblical wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and so on, we have to realize that it will come in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's in this very epistle that we find James testifying that if any of you lack wisdom, and how many of us have read that passage and said, well, this must be for someone else. In fact, when we read that passage, we're struck with how helpful such a counsel is because there are so many times as mothers, as spouses, as people in the workplace, as those who are facing difficult circumstances that we feel what? Our lack of wisdom. How do I navigate this very difficult situation in such a way that honors the Lord, and yet is not just careless toward others, that cares for others. 
It's the psalmist who says, characterizing, of course, our Savior, but by His grace, His people, I am for peace, but they are for war. How does wisdom operate in such circumstances? You see, it's difficult when such things are real. It's difficult when Christians are being provoked. It's difficult when see the danger of error and heresy and other such things as that. In other words, the employment of wisdom is not something that's like a light switch where you know where it is, you find it on the wall, you turn it on, and now you're exercising and employing wisdom. Rather, it can feel at times as if there's a maze and there's a great difficulty of trying to figure out what's going on. And so when we think about the employment of wisdom, we have to realize that its employment is difficult. But notice, it is, which, it is something which is to be governed. It's governed, of course, by God, as we've seen, by His Word, and so on. But this employment, though difficult, the circumstances are often uh, complicated, yet it is managed and governed by this exercise of peaceful seeking of peacemaking. So this employment, characterized by God's Word, governed by God's Word, in the midst of difficult circumstances, you know, how do I be a faithful friend to this one who's entertaining temptation? How do I be a faithful mom when my son is entertaining this sin? How do I be a faithful spouse when my spouse is struggling with this? How am I a faithful worker when my boss is doing that? Because when we're asking faithfulness questions, we're asking preeminently, how do I honor the Lord while doing what I can to honor this relationship? That requires all that has been said about biblical wisdom. But we want to see Secondly, the goal of wisdom, which is admittedly the focus of this text. Notice the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. What is the goal? Well, the goal simply is the establishment of peace. This word peace, which is here used in two ways, sown in peace by them that make peace. It's the same word in the Greek. And it has to do with the idea of harmony and unity and that which is uh, uh, together. It's the opposite of what's mentioned in verse 16 when you have in our English the word confusion or as the margin indicates tumult or unquietness. So what we're seeking is not a purposed riling up of perhaps our opponent or of our friend or of our co-worker or of our spouse. Brethren, this instantly brings, in some way, does it not, a conviction because there have been times when we have spoken even the truth with a purpose to jab, with a purpose to provoke, with a purpose to get them, as it were, out of balance and feeling the difficulty of their position in a sinful way, a sinful motive from us. But the goal of wisdom, and even as is here, the goal of righteousness, the exercise of righteousness, is the establishing of peace. So you can think of this in discussions had with other Christians with whom we differ. 
perhaps Presbyterian and Baptist or Presbyterian and Lutheran or various Presbyterians and various Presbyterians or members in a congregation and other such things. This is helping us see that my goal is not just to stand for the truth. Now, we don't mean to lessen the stand for the truth in the least, but it's to stand for the truth with a purpose to establish peace. I am for peace. They are for war. I am using the Lord's Word. I am managing the truth. I'm contending earnestly for the truth, for the faith, with a purpose, first and foremost, to honor God, to glorify Him, but with reference even to this person in seeking peace. Remember, of course, as has been stated before, that when Servetus, that archeretic who spoke blasphemous things about God and called the Trinity Cerberus, the three-headed dog of Hades. He was found out and he had a death warrant on him in every city, uh, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Reformed. And he's arrested in Geneva and Calvin visits him on a regular basis, pleading with him to repent. And he endured much profanity, much blasphemous speech, and accompanied Servetus along the way to his death sentence, not a church sentence, but a civil sentence, as it was a civil crime at that time, pleading with Servetus to repent. It's an example of true theology seeking a true and right end, even with an archeretic. It's not just to, as it were, put Servetus in his place, it is to seek Servetus's ultimate good and God's praise. We ought to remember as well, Calvin being his own testimony, that the thing which often struck Calvin so much about himself with reference to conviction was how bitter he could be at times. Now, we see that in some occasions but it is at least an admission on his part that though he had right doctrine and right practice and right worship, he was aware of a tendency within him to be bitter and involve invective pretty quickly and carelessly. Biblically speaking, we see here a beautiful picture of how it is we are to engage with the exercise of wisdom and righteousness. It is to seek Peace. And so, in our, if we can bring this perhaps into our own lives, you know, in our marriages, there will be disagreements. What is it we speak truth about? Maybe our husband is off. Maybe our wife is off. Maybe both of us are off. What's my purpose? Is it to win the day? Is it to win the argument? To get my way? I'm going to gather and assemble all of the arguments of biblical truth so that in the end I get mine and he gets put in his place or she gets put in her place? And the answer is no. We will assemble arguments of truth, but we will assemble them with a purpose to establish peace. Not to become the one who uh, emerges the victor, but rather to be the one who is an instrument to seek the establishing of peace in our home. You think of it in a congregation or in a denomination. There are times when you will read the annals of church history at presbyteries and synods, 
um, consistory meetings and other such things, and there are heated moments. And what's often most beautiful is one who is endued with great biblical wisdom stands and gives such an appeal to not just some broad compromise, but to remember that we are officers who are charged of God to seek peace, which then helps, as it were, the pursuit. So in church courts, in disciplinary cases, in counsel, in family matters, all of these things, if we are exercising wisdom, we will have, as it were, a goal subordinate to our chief goal, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But toward that ultimate end, we are seeking peace. Now, as elsewhere in the Scriptures we read, as much as is with us, we are to seek peace. Others may be ever intent on war, and yet that doesn't give us a justification to lose our cool and run our mouths, the very thing that opened the chapter. But rather, we are to maintain a quest for establishing peace. Now, how does one pursue that? With the exercise of biblical wisdom, with the cultivation of righteousness, as verse 18 says. But notice the manner that this goal is, the manner with which this goal is sought. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So there's the goal, the making of peace. But how is it pursued? It's sown in peace. The manner of pursuit, the manner of cultivation is characterized with peacefulness. I'm reading a little section from John Flavel on sinful anger. And he spoke of the horror of anger, sinful anger. And he said, if your face would get locked in the position in the midst of the time that you're angry, what a horrid face that would be. What an ugly face that would be. And his point being that it's not just the outward display, but that's a window into the wrinkled soul, the ugly soul that is sinfully angry. But we can add to that, when there is a face that is truly full of peace, what a beautiful thing. And if that were truly indicative of a soul governed by peace and pursuing peace, what a beautiful thing that that is. And so it is, that in our speech and conduct, in our quest to be wise people employed for the glory of God and the good of a church, the good of our marriage, the good of our home, the good of our workplace, the glory of God in those things, even when things are difficult, as we in- mentioned, the employment of wisdom is in difficult circumstances, even then we are to be managed by and governed by a way of peace. Remember, how Christ referred to John and James as the sons of thunder. Remember as well that when there was a prophet or prophets in the camp of Israel, that Moses uh, was told, as it were, to put this away. And he said, would to God that everyone was a prophet. Jesus says to the sons of thunder, you know, not, manner, not what manner of men ye are. And yet, brethren, think of this for a moment. In today's world, step outside of the church for a moment. In today's world, it's the cantankerous, it's the witty, it's the put-downs, it's those things that get the attention, the thumbs-up and the likes. It's those things which go throughout as someone put in their place and, oh, what an amazing insight and how quick-witted and all those things. 
Brethren, those are the exact opposite of what should be trophies in our life and in this world. They aren't pursuing peace, they aren't wise, and they certainly aren't managed and governed by peace. You know, there's a church in the Bible that was characterized by such divisions. It's Corinth. You remember Paul's words towards Corinth, that they were as carnal. He doesn't call them carnal directly. He says, ye are as carnal. You're behaving as if you are governed by carnality. It's interesting. That's Paul writing. Remember what James has said about wisdom which brings forth strife in our hearts and tumult out. It is, verse 15, not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Do you hear that word? Sensual. It's something that is natural to fallen flesh, to sinful flesh. Where that prevails, there will be all manner of divisions. There will be all manner of friction. All such party spirit and other such things. I remember being at a meeting once and a man who just wanted to talk about all of the controversies and not just out of a, help me understand, but of this idea to perpetuate and to make these divisions stronger and fuller. And another minister who was, by God's grace at that time, given a measure of wisdom to say such words as redirected to more wholesome consideration that would minister help in the midst of difficult situations. Brethren, that's how we are to be. We don't back away from debate. We don't back away from those issues of concern. We manage those debates. We manage those issues of concern as those who are sowing seeds of righteousness in peace. That even in the moment of discussion and debate with fellow Christians, with others, there should be a sincere acknowledgement. Others should be able to say, person is for peace. Now, worldly men won't perhaps wish to say as much or acknowledge as much, but it should be, as it were, our goal before the Lord and in the presence of others that such would be done. There's no more difficult time whereby we should or whereby we uh, would show forth a peaceful management of ourselves and discussion and counsel and behavior than when we are at odds with another person. It's then that we feel that it's instantaneous almost where we're going along life so coolly and calmly and then something's said and instantly we fire up and we're ready to blast off as it were. Well here, notice God is calling us to a different approach. An approach that does not compromise righteousness, that is earnest in the same and yet is managed in our discussions with others, especially other Christians, in a way of seeking the establishment of peace in a way of peace. It's beyond our particular focus, but notice what he says in the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Whence come wars and fightings among you? That is, among you Christians. So he's just spoken of peace. And now he's going to, where come the battles that characterize you? He says, come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members. There's this selfish principle, this selfish motive, this selfish governance, instead of the governance from heaven, from God, from above. 
That is first pure, peaceable, gentle, and so on. Brethren, this is to instruct us with reference to our own engagement with others and our own counsel and conduct, that we are to seek godly and gracious peace. We can break this down into a variety of scenarios in church and family and work and elsewhere in recreation, with our friends, with enemies, with strangers. We are to be consciously pursuing not the world's esteem of peace. So, for instance, the world says, well, we want to be at peace, so why are you so much against a woman's right to choose, by which they mean the woman's right to murder her baby? And they say, you use these provocative words like murder. That's not peaceful. Well, there's a difference between using a biblical expression for the sake of clarity and making sure the truth is clearly understood, and using the same biblical expression with a purpose to provoke and set off. So in other words, there's all sorts of sins today that go by other names. It's not for us to capitulate and use the other names. But it's also not for us to use the right term and use it in a way that's just meant to mow down others and not promote truth. The reason we're standing with clarity calling sin, sin, is not because we just want to lay people in the dust. It's because if there's any hope by God's grace that that person would come to repent and by God's grace enter into the kingdom of righteousness, they must come to see that they stand at odds with God. They must come to see that it's not just some flowery and feathery term that is to be used, but sin is sin. It needs to be called sin. But it needs to be called sin in such a way that is sincerely seeking peace. The establishment of God's peace. When Christ went preaching the gospel of reconciliation and righteousness, He was proclaiming the kingdom by the gospel of peace. And what did he call sinners to do? He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say, you know, I know that people have said some pretty bad things about your lifestyle, but, you know, let's not worry about that and just sort of come in and we'll love one another and carry on in life. No, he says, here's the gospel of peace. Here's the kingdom of righteousness. Its entrance is through repentance. You must repent. We're not going to rename what sins are. And so he calls adulterers to repent. He calls covetous to repent. He calls idolaters to repent. He doesn't call people who are really struggling to have intimacy with their spouses to sort of maybe change a little bit and come back. He says, you're adulterers. You need to repent. He doesn't say, well, this is the way they were taught. They were taught to worship God in this way. He calls them idolaters and calls them to repent. Paul does the same thing. James does the same thing. The prophets before them do the same thing. But here's where we have to be clear. We don't look at the way the world is and then, as it were, become unhinged 
in our speech and become those fire breathers, as it were, and say, I've got, as it were, license and warrant to say all these things in any manner that I wish. We say the truth, but how is it that we're to speak the truth? We're to speak the truth in love. So we can look at an adulterer and say, you're an adulterer. You need to repent. I don't want to be called an adulterer. Well, out of love to God and love to your soul, I have no other choice but to call you that. You're a liar and you need to repent. I don't want to be considered a liar. Well, that's what you are. And here's the good news. A liar can be forgiven. A liar can be reconciled to God. And we can go through the whole list of these things. The point is, biblical wisdom holds fast to the standards of God's Word, defining sin, tending earnestly for the faith. And yet, biblical wisdom does so governed by sincere pursuit of peace and managing our words and tongue with peace as well. Before going further, consider what it would be like if in our marriages such wisdom prevailed. Every marriage, every relationship is going to have issues of difference. Every relationship in a congregation is going at one way or another to one degree or another have differences of opinion and views and we're not even speaking about massive things and other things as that. What a blessing it is if in those moments in our marriages and our parenting and relating with one another in a congregation or the broader body of Christ beyond our congregation, we would ourselves and they themselves approach our discussions and our relationships with this commitment to fearing God, purity, peaceable, so on, and seeking the establishing of peace. If that were the case, think of how we would use biblical truth. Think of how we would listen to one another. Why is it that someone is able to be peaceable and gentle when they're biblically wise? Well, it's by God's grace. It's given by God but it's because they're set upon establishing peace. They're seeking harmony. Their quest is to find a way forward according to God's Word that peace can prevail. And so they don't become unhinged and unglued. They become governed by these standards of truth. This leads us, of course, to examine ourselves. What a testimony James opens with in many things we offend all. And particularly what need there is for officers in the church to examine themselves. Be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. When you first come to the qualifications of an elder, or bishop, minister, and so on, it's in one sense sort of vanilla. It's not some astounding thing when you look at the qualifications until you realize how searching those qualifications are. That these are characteristics of grace in maturity. These are characteristics of grace that govern a man's engagement with others and instruction to others and how he manages himself under pressure and under the fire of affliction. 
and you start to realize these qualifications are rich and full qualifications indeed. This is James's point. Be not many masters, because there will be greater judgment. Brethren, each of us, whether officer or not, has need to examine ourselves, because each of us, by God's grace, to one degree or another, love truth. And by God's grace, we're learning to hate sin. And we praise God for that. But we have to ask the question, in my quest to cultivate the fruit of righteousness in myself and in others, am I doing so in the way that God's Word sets forth? Am I sowing such in peace as one who makes peace? Is it true? It's easy, isn't it, to say either, well, I'm for righteousness, or to say, well, I'm for peace. But how difficult it is to say, I am both for righteousness and peace, and to manage those together. It's easy to say, well, because I'm for righteousness, I'm going to set aside this governing of myself, and I'm going to let my passions carry my voice, my activity, my words, my carriage in general. Or it's easy to say, well, because I'm for peace, I'm going to ignore all of these sins. I'm going to set aside those uh, very clear issues that ought to be addressed because I'm just going to be for peace. The Scriptures don't allow us to take one of those kinds of ways because it's the fruit of righteousness that is sown in peace of them that make peace. Brethren, we have need to examine ourselves. Are we truly seeking righteousness in ourselves and others? And as we do, are we doing it by God's grace in a way that is pursuing peace? How can we close without clearly articulating our great need for requesting God to give us wise men and women, wise adults and young people in the church? We've seen, of course, the wicked effects of unprincipled commitment to so-called peace. There are so-called churches of our day that have said, we're going to be for such peace that makes us say all the standards of righteousness are dropped. And you and I look at those churches and we are amazed at what their billboards put forth. We're amazed at what fills their pulpits, Brethren, you can go to many churches, church buildings in our own nation, in Massachusetts and in the Northeast, that were one-day Puritan congregations. And you'll see these, the Mathers and Edwards and others along the way. And then you get to the present day, and you're astounded at the so-called minister that's filling the pulpit. These churches, over time, for a variety of reasons, far more complicated than we have time to deal with, said along the way, God's standards of truth and righteousness are going to be compromised because of our understanding of what peace is. When that happens, the church loses its witness and the church compromises its commitment. And eventually, apart from the Lord's renewing, reviving, reforming grace leading to repentance, the church becomes synagogues of Satan, even as 
A confession testifies with the The other side is likewise true. We know what it is to have firebrands. We know what it is to have someone who's just always angry, always carrying on, always pushing the envelope. And it's as if they say, because of where the world is, this is how I'm going to go about things. And it plows through people and it doesn't take time to consider nuances and considerations of circumstance and so on like we considered in previous times. You look at the scriptures and it speaks of murder, but it gives helpful cases to make us realize, you know, when someone is killed this way, it's different than when they're killed that way. That takes care, that takes thought, that takes nuance and skill and wisdom. That's one thing that made Solomon so prominent was he was able, as several cases indicate, to see through the matter and be able to bring something to bear upon that thing in order to display the truth to others. So here are these two women, you know, the story about one son being killed, the other alive. She says, this is mine. They say, that's mine. He says, go get a sword. Let's divide the child and we'll give one half to the other. And instantly, boom, the mother comes out and says, no, let her take it. Let her have the child. Some people wish to replicate that and say, well, this is what we'll do in every That's not going to happen. Quote, unquote, every time. Solomon knew the circumstances of the moment he was given divine wisdom and discerning circumstances and matters and morality and was brought to bear in that moment. But remember, before that, Solomon asked God, when God said, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. He said, I need understanding for who is sufficient to govern such a great people. Who can handle all of the cases that will be brought to us? If we're going to be wise as husbands and wives, as parents and members and adults and older people and younger people and all between, we must, as Solomon did, be much in asking God for wisdom. Far too often we act, well, I've read the book, now I can get on with it. And it's interesting, Solomon, though wiser than others, his life starts to opens a watershed to all sorts of sin, where his heart was taken unto the love of many women. And massive upheaval took place in his life. What you see if you read closely is Solomon comes to his great uh, establishment and it seems as if Solomon drifts from his dependence upon the Lord. Here's the point. If we're to have this wisdom, if we're to maintain this wisdom, if we're to pursue what wisdom pursues, we must be full of a constant and earnest request, beseeching prayer to God. God, only as you supply this wisdom will I be able to exercise and engage with it to the promotion of your glory and the peace of others in my home, in my church, and in the world beyond. And here's the great encouragement as we close. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Would you stand with me then for prayer?